Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Good afternoon from Singapore. I'm your host, uh, Mubashir Zain Kazmi, Head of Research at the Asian Banker. And I would like to welcome you to this radio finance session on Will Card Payment Survive a Digital First World? during which we will discuss with our invited guests the ongoing transformation of the payments business and assess some of the different approaches being taken by various market players in terms of seizing new opportunities that present themselves within retail payments today. While the COVID-19 pandemic has had a dramatic impact in terms of the retail payment ecosystem around the world, we can credit both evolving consumer behavior and regulatory reform that has really contributed to this sharp increase in use of digital payments. But despite the traction we're seeing today in terms of the growth of digital, mobile, e-wallets, and QR code-based payments, what does this mean for plastic physical cards in terms of uh, importance? This radio finance session will discuss if card-based payments will be able to overcome this new dynamic in terms of how they can meet the increasing requirements for uh, low cost, speed, transparency, predictability. Rethinking the business model has become imperative to both conventional and retail players and their non-traditional counterparts, including digital neobanks, as well as fintech to realize tailored product development smarter service support, and more refined data management for a superior customer experience. Today, we're pleased to have expert guests who will give us a wide range of perspectives encompassing leading Asian, Asian banks, international card schemes, and technology service providers. I would now like to take this opportunity to introduce our guests. First of all, we have Brian, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Tenex, which is Vietnam's first digital-only bank. Brian has extensive banking and digital experience in Europe, Russia, the Middle East, the US, and Asia. Also with us is Sharon Tan, who is the Executive Director of Regional Digital Consumer Finance and Card Payments at DBS. She oversees the digital experience transformation of the lending and cards business across the region and has 11 years of experience in consumer banking and wealth management. Next is Ben Gilby, who's responsible for MasterCard's suite of payment solutions. Prior to joining MasterCard, Gilby worked as, at PayPal as Director Regional Head for Mobile Asia Pacific. He has spent the past 20 years in Asia Pacific working on a range of digital payment initiatives. Also with us is Priyanka Madan, who is the Head of GrabPay at Grab Malaysia. She has more than 15 years of experience across payments, strategy, development, investments, and operations. Before joining Grab, she held key positions at Lazada Group. And finally, we have Michael Robertson, who is the VP Sales within Trust, leading the company's Bureau Solutions sales activities in Asia Pacific and Japan. Michael has over 20 years of experience in the card personalization and issuance domain. We're very glad to have you join us today and for you to share your insights with us. To get us started though, I would like to share the responses to a poll that we conducted recently among our online readers and followers on the topic. We asked this one question on what is driving your strategy for improving portfolio performance with respondents having the option to choose from both consumer experience, 
top of wallet product focus, or a combination of both. In terms of the results, 33% of the people who responded chose providing the best consumer experience as a method to connect, build trust and loyalty while enhancing customer value, simplicity and speed as the key driver. 11% of respondents were of the view that having a top of wallet product focus, delivering personalized, well-designed and value-added programs that reward brand loyalty as the principal facilitator. A majority indicated and identified both as equally important. So a combination of consumer experience and top of wallet product focus is needed to provide customers with a great first impression, along with delivering long-term value that recognizes and rewards brand loyalty. In this next slide, we've delved a little deeper to understand the why and the thinking behind the three options presented between customer experience, top of wallet, and or a combination of both. An important observation is the potential of how customer ex experience can help drive the growth of transaction volumes and fee-based incomes for issuers. Whereas when we look at the top of wallet product focus, it is predicated on the ease of access, convenience, and speed. And why are these both considered as critical elements? There's a broad acknowledgement that a digital and optimized customer experience is important to cater for the needs of an increasingly digital native customer base. As banks, card issuers, fintechs, neobanks, and other non-traditional players navigate the increasingly competitive landscape to drive the payment card business, these two key strategies continue to come to mind, delivering best customer experience and focusing on top of wallet product design both being instrumental in terms of delivering long-term value. With that said, I would like to pit our guests on the, on, on the two sides of this argument for either delivering a superior customer experience or opting to maintain a top-of-wallet product focus. To start off with, perhaps we can have Brian and Sharon give their perspective from the consumer experience piece and Ben to argue in favor of top-of-wallet followed by Priyanka and Michael, perhaps giving us their perspective in terms of uh, uh, both key factors. Ben, perhaps you can uh, share your thoughts from a top-of-wallet product focus standpoint. I am going to come down a little bit in the uh, on the fence on this one, however, um, and say that top-of-wallet is going to actually come also from a great customer experience. Um, but top-of-wallet is becoming predominantly uh, the end objective and the end goal in an increasingly rarefied um, and concentrated e-commerce and digital payments uh, ecosystem. Uh, it's becoming incredibly important that you get that everyday use, also those subscription payments that you get from being top of wallet on your everyday use applications, such as Grab, for example, Priyanka, uh, but also um, on uh, areas like uh, like e-commerce, um, so Lazada, Shopee, Amazon, so forth, and of course your subscriptions to your streaming services that we've all been very dependent on uh, over the last 12 to 18 months. Um, so I think gaining that top of wallet is critical. Um, and to that end, designing 
cardholder value propositions that speak to those uh, particular merchants, those particular categories um, to gain top of wallet um, is particularly important. I'd like to also uh, ask Brian to give his insights and inputs from a consumer uh, experience uh, standpoint. Okay, I'll probably take a little bit of different tack there, but I do agree with what Ben said. I think it's important that we look back before we look forward on this. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's important we remove the jargon because I'm sick and tired of it. I'm sure you all are as well. So customer experience, very simply, is how people feel about your company, their perceptions, how emotionally engaged they are with you. Not about your products, about your companies. If Apple launched a hotel tomorrow, it would be full, okay, because of that customer experience, that linkage to it. But back in the past, customer experience was face-to-face. Supply was bounded by location, regulation, product availability, choice. And, you know, I remember pre-digital, you know, shop owners and bankers knew the first names of the customers, their background, so, you know, credit score almost, ability to pay, and actually their needs. And what was most important, I think, as I come to the future, the transaction was more than the product or service. It was about the experience that customers, and a lot of customers look forward to it. And I suppose to, to speed it up, in 2007, it all changed where actually with the launch of the iPhone, we, we had that compelling opportunity to do customer experiences. But unfortunately, banks and payment companies struggle with this and they still haven't got it. And, and it, it is an opportunity right now to deliver the customer experience of the old days of that shop or that bank. And what I'm seeing time after time is this, this replication of products. And you know the, the classic one is a picture of a card in a digital wallet, okay? And, and then that's driven a product differentiation first. And that's really expensive, guys, because you're buying loyalty, you're spending eye-watering amounts in customer acquisition and cash back. And in fact, what you're trying to do is sweeten an analog pill that a, dodgy, a digital customer doesn't actually want to swallow. So coming up to now, it's, it's back to the future time, guys. Or, you know, or as kind of, how do we describe it? Beyond product, okay? And how are the payments companies, the MasterCard, the MB members, or the wallets, 39 of them in, my, in, in Vietnam, act to this is going to be about sustainability and actually long-term survivability. Mm-hmm. Now, I've been talking for 10 years about the death of plastic cards, and I've been wrong. Um, and I admit I've been wrong, and I don't think they're going to die very soon. It's all now about the second part of the sentence, and that's what we talk about here in Tenex. No customer in the history of payments has ever said, I want to make a payment full stop. Mm-hmm. They've said, I want to make a payment to buy a cup of coffee, to travel, to educate my children. And that actually opens up the experience, the true cross-sell, upsell and bundling. So the second part of that sentence is where the actual experience exists. The first part, which we seem to concentrate on a lot, is where the product is. I want to make a a payment. So the technology does exist. And I know MasterCard, Visa, a lot of people are adopting this, where cloud APIs, ecosystem, marketplace and data science So CX technology now exists to listen to customers. And we have to listen to customers to innovate, to generate loyalty Mm -hmm. and reduce the cost of acquisition and deepen and retain customers. And most importantly, to actually allow us to release new transformative or new value propositions. Because when I look at the car companies, I don't see transformative yet. I know they are in the process of that. So I think how we get to the top of water, of course, we're in business. I run a bank. I've got a board. I've, I've got to respond. I've got to make profitability. 
But how we get there needs to change. We've got to, we've really got to stop thinking of top of wallet and start about top, thinking about top of customer experience. And finally, it's good business sense, guys. We don't need the Accentures, the McKinsey, mm -hmm. and the Baines of the world to tell us that customers are willing to pay for a superior customer payment experience. Five-star hotels exist for a reason. Business class exists for a reason. You know, people are willing, but this experience has to be more than transactional and it has to be personalized to their lifestyle and their values. So finally, I think that organizations that are not governed by CX will diminish in importance over time. And this will be hugely accelerated by Gen Z over the next three years and when they enter the marketplace. And I think those companies, you know, be the MasterCard, or Visa, that concentrate on CX and drive products from a CX perspective, will by default, will end up at the top of the wallet. You know, so stop buying loyalty, give the customer what they want. Um, and I think by default, you'll, you'll end up there. Sharon, I'll, I'll pass it on to you as well. And, uh, you know, is it really all just about giving uh, the customer what they want um, and, you know, you know, are, are banks falling behind on this and being disrupted in terms of ensuring a superior customer experience? I think to us, the best customer experience is for our customers to be able to pay um, with whatever payment methods that they think is the most convenient and the most rewarding to them. So, you know, it can be in a form of cut plastics like we talked about, but it could also be mobile um, payment wallets or even cash. Right. So it's really up to the customer. And as a bank, we need to provide these kind of different options for them. So DBS being Singapore's largest card issuer, we do have you know, a diverse um, card uh, offering that caters to different groups of um, lifestyles, lifestyle needs, age groups, and so on. Um, but we also, more importantly, have you know, complemented that with a wide suite of digital payment solutions you know, like our digital um, DBS Payla application. And when it was launched in 2016, it has, you know, since integrated with many major payment rails and it's widely accepted in Singapore as a, a mobile wallet. So I think to me, um, creating a new engagement model is really what we are trying to focus now. And we need to do that by looking at how we can engage our customers in totality and allowing them to, you know, be rewarded in different platforms, be able to use, um, you know, to pay in different platforms. I'd like to bring in uh, Priyanka into this, uh, the debate between, uh, you know, customer experience versus the top of wallet product focus. Uh, Priyanka, would you weigh in on the great debate? I'm on the fence on this one as well. I mean, coming from a digital wallet space where our mission statement is to go head on against cash and convert, you know, the cash users to digital users. It is imperative for us to make the wallet ubiquitous in terms of acceptance. So the more daily needs, the more use cases we can bring to the wallet, um, you know, to add to the um, to the liquidity of how far the money goes, uh, the money that is in the user's digital wallet, the better that works for us. Um, but not to undermine how critical customer experience becomes in this whole journey. I have firsthand seen comments in our NPS reports, I have seen focus group discussions where it's only customer experience with a single use case that truly inspires the trust and confidence that the users build to go adopt the next use case that we launch in the market. You know, So to create that sustainability, to create that ubiquity of acceptance that we are aiming towards, it's, it's equally important to not take the eye off 
um, you know, keeping that top-notch customer experience so that the trust and the confidence doesn't waver. Um, to bring the point home, I think ultimately for us, it's as simple as having a very laser-focused view on who is our target segment and what is their pain point and how can we solve for that in like the most seamless, simple way. Um, you know, a, a very complex use case like investment has been fractionalized and made simple bite-sized investment for the users who are initiated to the whole investments world for the first time. So that's one end of the spectrum. Um, the second end of the spectrum is uh, simple retail investments, but how can we build a product feature as delightful as using your grab reward points or loyalty points along the way to create a discount um, as you're checking out, you know? So it, I, I feel I'm, I'm literally on the fence here. Um, I cannot overemphasize the need for both, uh, at least for the juncture we are at in, in our growth journey for Grab. I'd like to uh, bring Michael in uh, on this as well. Uh, Michael uh, certainly can uh, provide us uh, input from a card solution perspective and looking at how uh, uh, FIs can improve the performance of their uh, card portfolio. Um, so, so Michael, over to you uh, in terms of uh, what a successful card product uh, looks like. I'm definitely not sitting on the fence. <laughs> I'm over the fence and through the field. So uh, from a business perspective, Entrust has 50% of its business segments on the digital sphere. So we play very heavily in the mobile space, be it identity or payment and everything in between. But I sit on the, the card side and you know, I want to best represent the card side for the purpose of this discussion. But, you know, I think going back to customer experience and top of wallet, both are equally important in building that bond between the card issuer and the card holder and the program at large. And, you know, both can approach that in very different ways, but essentially the output is portfolio performance. If you get either or both right, ideally, you're going to drive portfolio performance. My remit is, you know, from from as far northwest as uh, east as Japan and right down to Bangladesh. So I get to be exposed to different markets and different levels of maturity within those payment markets and and the involvement of different technologies as they come on and just watch that that develop. And there is no silver bullet for for payment, but the one thing I'm continually encouraged by, again selfishly from a card perspective is just that link, that link between a card program and the success of the portfolio. And essentially that, that is that combination between customer experience and top of wallet. From a customer experience perspective, you know, it could be the way that you get that card issued. And then if they get the program right and the top of wallet right and the personalisation, everything that we will get into the conversation during the yeah. course of this discussion, yeah. you know, that again drives that long-term portfolio performance. I think this would be a really good uh, segue, uh, you know, in terms of uh, moving on to, to our topic and, and really uh, assessing the relevant, relative importance of plastic cards, as, as you mentioned, in terms of uh, them being a source of uh, branding. Um, I, I, would, uh, I would probably uh, ask uh, either Brian or, or Sharon, um, you know, to weigh in on this, uh, you know, coming from both a bank and, uh, you know, a digital bank perspective, uh, starting off with Sharon, um, if, if you can, uh, if you can also give us, uh, you know, your or share your experience rather from from a cards payment side, uh, you know, representing you know leading bank in in in, in the ASEAN region, 
Um, you know, what role plastic cards is playing uh, as a branding instrument? Um, and, you know, what implications will this have for your customers? Um, and, you know, given that we're now transitioning to a very, uh, you know, strong digital first environment. Card plastic, you know, it's, it's definitely a good instrument for branding. But like you said, you know, as we move towards a, a more increasingly digital world, um, we need to find other ways um, to make payments, especially, you know, with COVID, we are now seeing an increase in um, contactless payments. And so I think at DBS, what we really want to do is to make banking invisible and, and so that customers can engage with us seamlessly through their, throughout their daily lives. And to do that, then it would require us to provide more than just the cut plastic. You know, so we would have uh, contactless payments, we have mobile wallets. So what we really strive to do is to embed ourselves in the lives of our customers. But that said, I think that the physical card um, will stay with us um, in maybe the short to medium term, at least, especially in certain markets where some transactions still require, you know, a physical card. What's important is that we continue to invest in our card business and uh, uh, and see how can we uh, continue to create credit cards in a sustainable way. So uh, just most recently, we launched um, Singapore's first eco-friendly recycled PVC card called the DBS Lefresh card. Um, that's also one of our ways to uh, continue to promote the sustainability agenda for our card business. I totally agree with what China is saying, but mm-hmm. this was a little bit from us. It's very much a jurisdictional market infrastructure question. Okay, so if I take where we are in, in Vietnam, we've got 58 million people unbanked. We don't have a positive infrastructure. It's geographically dispersed. Uh, we have a digitally obsessed nation who spend on average six hours and 15 minutes on digital media. We, we have a card and because uh, for two reasons. One, it's our only method of cash out. And secondly, you know, we have a, we built Tnex Pay. It's our own closed loop payment system. But interoperability, of course, is something that the QR payments haven't got to yet. There's too many standards. So how do you pay? You know, everywhere. You know, if you if I remember the QR scheme, um, I don't see cards disappearing in the in the short term. I hope they disappear in the long term, uh, because I, I I my bank is for uh, for Gen Z and it's also for micro merchants. I build volume. I don't have big analog dollars. It's digital sense. We concentrate on a really superior customer experience. People can have a card. We don't have branches. It can be in their hands anywhere in Vietnam in 24 hours. It's contactless. We spent a lot of time, but it's expensive. So therefore, you know, I give free banking, everyday banking, and can make a profit, but it's one of my largest costs, cards, um, because of my segment. It's about $3.20 into the hand of customers. And I'm dealing with customers and merchants, uh, merchants who earn on average revenue $20,000 to $30,000 a year, and customers who earn $2,172 a year on average. Okay, so I need to keep the costs down. So um, last thing to reflect what Sharon is saying, we have multiple ways of payments. Your B, your brand, your BX must mirror your CX, which must mirror your UX. If your customers want a card, give them a card. If your customers yeah. don't want a card, don't. When banks uh, first issued uh, MagStripe Mag plastic cards, there were you know we had a lot of variety, um, and you know got co-branded cards or or different uh, card programs. Uh, now the question is, 
don't you think the issue is with personal scripting that is the problem restricting or hindering issuance of plastic cards in, in the chip card space? It's also speaking to the fact that uh, now that contactless chips are uh, mandated um, across all uh, cards, debit or credit, uh, that the, I think the, the, the uh, questioner was asking whether uh, that hinders the design capabilities. Um, I don't think it does at all. We're seeing a lot of unique designs. Um, you know, just take the example of Apple Card. As to the design, where our brand went, um, how the uh, personalization uh, appeared on the front and the back of the card. And we've seen the same, for example, with the Grab Card in Singapore. Um, a lot of flexibility um, and, and, and personalization that is available uh, for the issuer, for the customer. We, we're addressing those issues um, of providing greater design flexibility. The problem is it's not within the remit of EMV, a lot of these decisions. So I think it's a bit unfair for you guys to take it in the neck. Regulators are very clear, uh, particularly here in Vietnam uh, and, and definitely in other jurisdictions, on how you can design a card. Uh, all of our cards are NFC. All of our cards are, uh, are, are chipped. I wouldn't pick Apple as the, the main one. If you look at what Tinkoff has done with their metal card a long time before that and how that drove... Uh, the design thinking. Tinkoff has done phenomenal work in this space and their design and how they how they match it to their CX, their metal card, they were the first to do it, is, is been phenomenal. Now we're seeing wooden cards. It actually means a lot that we have sustainable cards and we're not sticking microplastic into oceans uh, when these cards find the, their funeral. Um, so Priyanka, you know, how does the Grab card um, relate to Grab payments in a mobile wallet sense? The Grab pay must mm -hmm our prepaid card in, in context of Singapore where we have launched it was mm -hmm. just leveraging on the card network to expand our opportunities in terms of presence and acceptance. You know, overnight we got access to 15 million uh, worldwide um, acceptance points, uh, which are thanks to MasterCard network. And I think in, in case of a wallet, that, that speed to market, that ubiquity of acceptance becomes very, very critical to us. So, you know, a big... Um, um, a big support to creating that reach uh, for Grappi. Um, I would also add how significant a disbursement channel it has become for us because um, I guess people have taken a liking to the innovation that was built around it. It's a numberless card. It's the first of its kind in the region. It's secure. Um, the usage of the card is not necessarily limited to physical plastic form factor. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the the, the value proposition around the card was really how can we make it secure, seamless, rewarded, um, and connected to every single use case that the wallet is going with. The growth trajectory that we are at, you know, the card has only helped us uh, push our business further. Michael, um, you know, we've had this discussion about uh, plastic cards. Um, how do you see, uh, you know, them being differentiated really in this fast moving uh, space? I mean, looking at uh, the different, uh, you know, potential for, for it as a branding instrument, um, you know, perhaps you can also share your input on, on this. What we're seeing is the most important um, part of a successful card program from our perspective and what's being reflected back on us is personalization, the ability to personalize. So whether that's through KYC to personalize the card specific to the end user that makes it more relevant to them so is that continued use. You know, you, whether you look at the McKinsey personalization model, 
or you look at um, third-party entities that have reported on banks that have deployed card personalization programs over the course of 12 months and look at the lift and shift, the increased amount of transactions, the increased spend per card. You know, this is, again, um, related to that psychological bond between the issuer and that, that card program. And the closer you can get to something that's relevant to that cardholder, then the more beneficial um, that card program will become uh, to everybody. You know, um, uh, again, being domiciled in Australia, we've seen the, the quick adoption of mobile technology, contactless technology many years ago. You know, it's ubiquitous across the country. And at that time, you know, speaking to the banking entities, it was you couldn't speak to them about cards effectively. You know, they were, they were a mainstay. We're, we're focusing everything on mobile. Now, the interesting uh, effect after having this for, in the market for 10 plus years is that now the banks are coming back to us and saying, you know, where we used to spend hours every day thinking about mobile and mobile payment, now we're refocusing on the card. You know, and it has been a quantum leap in the capability of, of card personalization. You know, typically it was the landscape embossed card that didn't really draw much uh, uh, attraction, attention, the ability to personalize, the ability to create that psychological bond. But now, you know, technology has opened up. We've got all sorts of different formats. Embossing can be passe now. We have vertical cards, metal cards were mentioned, print on demand. You know, the, the, the opportunities to, again, target and personalise to that end user are almost infinite. And that's, that's where we're seeing the increased spend. And, and banks are coming back to us and saying, you know, different banks have been through the journey at different stages, like it's no silver bullet across, uh, across the world. But the ones who have been through that journey are coming back to us and saying that we're actually seeing that the card is the most important branding instrument they have at their disposal. And I'd like to use that uh, as a segue to, to move into our next topic, which is really around uh, you know, the application of AI and data and analytics and really how that can also um, you know, contribute to you know, a deeper understanding of customers and, and really support the, the, the push for personalization. Uh, so, so Sharon, uh, you know, from DBS's perspective, I mean, we've seen and uh, witnessed has, has how banks in the region are undergoing you know, robust transformation in terms of applying AI to better serve their customers. Um, you know, how do you see this evolving, uh, particularly in, in the payment space? And, and what are you doing in terms of leveraging, you know, the extensive uh, pools of data that, that you have in your data capabilities to support your customers um, and, and, and potentially even uh, personalization? I would say that we are big on, on data. So, you know, uh, we use our data analytics capabilities um, to provide um, intuitive and intelligent services and not just to our customers. And this applies not just to our payment services, but you know, across the bank for other products as well. When it comes to cards, I think what we're trying to do is to provide you know, more personalized nudges and contextualized offers to our customers. Um, you know, working with be it uh, our merchant partners to tap, uh, allowing them to tap on our base to provide those offers um, to to customers, or even in, internally, you know, when we see we are we are able to to have a good read about our customers, their spending behavior, their transaction behaviors, and how do we reward our customers based on these um, information that we know. So, for example, uh, we know that some customers frequently order food delivery. 
So I'll be able to, to then push them a uh, personalized cashback promotion uh, that is relevant to them. So we are trying to do more of uh, these contextualized um, journeys. Uh, and, and to do that, we need to have very meaningful insights about customers. And also, uh, we at DBS, we also want to um, uh, you know, really have a framework to ensure the integrity of how we use our um, customer data. So we have this framework called the PURE framework. Uh, refers to, uh, it, it stands for P-U-R-E, P stands for purposeful. So we want to make sure that you know, whatever that we send to customer has a purpose. It has to be unsurprising. So customers cannot feel, oh, why am I getting this uh, message from, uh, from the bank? You know, how, how do they know this about me? So it shouldn't be unsurprising to them. And it has to be very respectable, respectful um, towards the customer. Um, and lastly, it, it has to be explainable. Are we able to explain clearly why are we doing this? Why are we using this data uh, in, a, in, in a very you know, logical manner? Brian, Brian, if, if you can give us also your input in terms of how uh, you know, advanced analytics can be a key differentiator, especially for facilitating you know, customer retention acquisition, and then broadly in, in terms of driving those, those digital payments. We didn't transform. We're in a greenfield, completely brand new bank. Everything is built on cloud from the bottom up. Uh, we don't have to implement MDM or RPA or these other optimization. Um, at the very center of our, center of our organization uh, is our CDP. We're one of the first banks to put in a CDP. And that's powered not by analytics. And we need to move away from that by data science. And maybe mm -hmm. look, analytics just tells you what. Um, my operating model is for 3 million customers is 141, 141 FTE, both on assets and liabilities and payments and ops. So in order to do that, I need loads of AI. And, but also, we also uh, deep learn. We've gone beyond AI. We've gone beyond simple if-then-else NLP stuff. In fact, that's quite customer divorcing, actually, most of the time. So every night, we relearn all of our customers. We put them in for the, we use an open source uh, framework that relearns all of our customers. So even the UI UX is personalized mm -hmm. when you go in. We go down to segment of one. We don't talk about personas and any of that nonsense. That's all, you know, words for I can't get insight into my data. So, and I understand why I've been banking many, many years. But we go down all to the segment of one. We change your UI, your UX, our merchants um, have access to our AI. The other areas that we use it is risk. Of course, it drives payments. We do real-time behavioral uh, payments. Mm -hmm. uh, we have debit card fraud. Uh, it helps us on security. It, we, it runs our anomalies. We do real-time anomaly using the, uh, AI. And then we relearn. So the model trains. So we train our security or behavioral model every night. Availability, of course. It will tell me when things are about to go boom. Just because it's in the cloud, just because it's scalable, doesn't mean it's not going to fall over. And the last is cost. As I said, my operating model, I can't, if I need to take on more customers, I don't buy servers. I basically buy cloud, okay? I increase my OPEX, but of course, that makes it easier. So both from change the bank, run the bank, and manage the risk uh, around payments, around credit, around making sure that I deliver the right CX. Data's at the very core. It is the largest team in my bank, not IT. That's one of the smallest teams in the bank. Ben, as Brian has mentioned, data is really at the core. Um, so how do you see its application really in terms of uh, you know, the evolving payment needs of your clients and their end users and customers? 
So MasterCard, I think just the same as um, as DBS, we have uh, very rigid and and respectful rules about how we use data. Um, all of our data is aggregated. Um, none of it is is personal data, and we're very cautious and careful about how we use that data. Um, uh, and and so that's one of our key principles. I'll give a couple of examples though of how we're leveraging data and information and AI, or rather machine learning. Um, I think AI is a very overused term, quite frankly. Uh, one example is, is New Data, uh, which is a company that we acquired, I think, two or three years ago now. Uh, we use New Data and New Detect, one of their products, for continuous consumer validation. Um, so we're looking to authenticate the user on their mobile devices, on their tablets, wherever they are, whenever they are. And we do that through continuously tracking uh, how they're holding the device, um, how they're typing on the device, um, all kinds of behavioral considerations uh, that give us a higher level of confidence to say that user is the owner of that device um, because we recognize those behavioral traits. So that provides us with a lot more confidence, provides our merchants and our fintechs who are using these services, our, our financial institution customers, a lot more confidence and allows them to be uh, more measured in how they go about validating consumers. So not having to continuously validate them with SMS, etc. Um, it means we can be a lot less intrusive. Um, and, and delight customers uh, with a lot more seamless and frictionless uh, user experience. Another good example um, is products from Ethica, which is another company we recently acquired, uh, where we're able to provide a lot more information to consumers around the transactions that they've made. So often when you look at your statement, your card statements, um, whether it's online, whether it's printed, a lot of the names of the merchants are fairly opaque. Uh, there's not a lot of information that's given behind the transaction. Uh, Ethica allows us to present a lot more data and a lot more meaningful data to the consumer. So just a couple of examples of how we're using anonymized aggregated data to just provide better consumer experiences, reduce the friction, and just provide the consumer with a lot more detailed information that they can take advantage of. Priyanka, from from Grab's perspective, and I think what one of the one of the points to, to pick uh, from uh, from our discussion really around uh, you know having that frictionless, seamless payment experience. Um, so, how do you see uh, the role of uh, data and analytics in terms of driving that, and you know just being able to to wow and and uh, your, your your customers. Um, we are not trying to spring surprises at the customers, but we are trying to leverage the rich data we have through the various use cases under Grab as a super app strategy and how can we introduce users to these new use cases which come through um, in, in, in a targeted fashion that suits them the most. Um, the other thing I would highlight is how we mine these hundreds and millions of transactions that happen on Grab ecosystem to really make our risk and fraud system very secure, you know, which, which is absolutely paramount to us, echoing some of the thoughts uh, shared by the panelists earlier. Um, another example of how we are taking this forward is the recent launch of our PayLater product. You know, this is exactly where analytics and data has come in extremely handy in creating a very robust credit scoring system, which you know keeps the customer experience um, absolutely top-notch, fast, um, gives them the spending limit, which is within their reach, um, and of course keeps our loss rates 
in check as per our risk appetite. I'll use that as an opportunity to move to our to our next topic and really looking at how you know business and operating models are are sort of shaping uh, payment capabilities. Um, and and Sharon, um, perhaps you can uh, you know sh- share share your your thoughts really in terms of how you know we're looking if we're looking at both banks, non banks, you know they're uh, certainly rethinking and revamping their own business and operating models to adjust to these uh, new shifts and transformations within retail payments. Um, and, you know, just looking at, for instance, uh, you know, the, what we had when we had, you know, the tap and go, uh, and now you've got all these numerous digital wallets on offer. If we were to do a bit of uh, stargazing, um, you know, what new innovations are you foreseeing in terms of, you know, in payments uh, in the short to medium term? And, 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 you know, where do you see cards fitting in? We are constantly reviewing our operating model. And, um, but I, I think what I mentioned just now still stays that we want to continue to drive that personalized engagement to our customers, um, you know, sending them relevant nudges um, and also ensuring that, you know, what we um, services that we provide to them can be instant, can be seamless. Uh, we have launched the uh, instant card account um, uh, last year in Singapore and also in Hong Kong um, a few years ago, where we, we allow customers to not just apply for a card, but they can apply, get instantly approved and they can instantly provision it to um, Apple Pay. So that allows them to, you know, really um, uh, be able to uh, make payments instantly after they apply for a card. So this is a lot of, uh, these are some of the things that we want to continue to champion. And I think another area that we are working very, we are looking very closely at would be um, how to work with partners um, to innovate from a rewards and a loyalty perspective, um, working with, um, uh, e-commerce, working with other type of industry partners um, to provide a really digital reward uh, experience for our customers. Um, and I think, um, yeah, uh, uh, these are some of the, the, the things that we're going to do in the next few years and uh, we'll continue to um, sharpen this uh, focus as we go. Priyanka, I'll probably just uh, circle back to you as well um, and, and, and get, get your sense in terms of how you see this uh, space evolving and, and you know, um, how is uh, Grab reacting to all of these uh, new changes and, and, and innovation in payments? One of the key updates and uh, recent changes is the rollout of the national QR, which just makes, um, you know, QR payments across all digital wallets such a level playing field. Um, and the next step in this direction is how this national QR is soon to go cross-border. Um, we are particularly excited about this development where each of the country's national QR is now trying to create the cross-border integration. Um, I think the other particular trend that we are quite excited to be part of is the buy now, pay later trend that we see emerging. Um, you know, we genuinely see the gap and we have heard it firsthand from customers who don't necessarily have access to credit cards. Um, but promoting a very responsible credit line um, to these uh, customers, filling in for the gap, um, but avoiding them getting into a debt spiral or a credit yeah. spiral of any sort. I think that's that's the ultimate mission of this particular trend that we are latching on to. That's actually a very good segue for, for my next question to, to both Brian and Ben. Um, and it's on the buy now, pay later. And, and especially as, as uh, you know, Priyanka has just mentioned, uh, you know, that, that debt trap, uh, given that, you know, this is really targeted and designed for, for those millennials and the Gen Z segment. 
Um, so how do you see this uh, space uh, evolving and, and, you know, where does this stand in terms of uh, those customers who possibly, you know, in, you know, wouldn't be eligible, say, for a conventional credit card? Um, so I'll, I'll pass it to, to, to Brian first. Buy now, pay later is not you. Okay. It's a, re it's a poor reincarnation of how we used to live pre-digital, where you paid on taking a shop and you paid at the end. Okay. Except the merchant wasn't charged 7 to 8%. Uh, for that service, okay? It was a different world. Do I see it? Why is buy now, pay later? Here, you, you, you nailed it. Credit cards are not accessible to Gen Z. They don't have a credit score. And if you take that further, and I think Priyanka's totally right, you know, as an old corporate banker as well, it's very, very easy to lend money, guys. So easy to lend money. It's very hard to get it back. Um, and the issue with getting it back, Priyanka nailed it, and that's what Grab is going to, I think, going to do phenomenal things in this with the wealth of data. Being able to do that ethically and being able to credit score using alternate data, lifestyle data, or which is all that's really available in Vietnam at the moment, is huge. Uh, we've seen a massive move to buy now, pay later in the US. I've seen buy now, pay later for 10 bucks, you know, $12 people are using it. And also it's clean. Credit card companies, I'm sorry, are perhaps at times opaque banks. So pineapple pay language is quite simple. Pay on time, you don't get a penalty. And I think I really like what Priyanka is saying. As a banker, and particularly I've got a responsibility to the unbanked in Vietnam, you know, I don't want to become a predatory lender. I want to be able to offer ethical credit that they can repay. You know, we want a certain level of default, guys. Let's be open and honest. That gives us our portfolio performance. Uh, so do you think uh, buy now, pay later is equivalent to being a credit card for the next generation? Would that be a good or bad analogy? Uh, so I'll, I'll let uh, Ben take this one. I think BNPL is is fascinating. Uh, it's not new. Um, Afterpay has been around in Australia for at least four or five years, um, is doing incredibly well. Uh, we estimate that about 3% of global e-commerce is now on, on buy now, pay later. Uh, we expect that to go to 13% um, in the next two to three years. Um, so these companies are just going to take off, whether it's a firm, whether it's Afterpay, whether it's Klarna, well, they've already taken off. Um, and I think what's particularly interesting is that, yes, it's very relevant for those people who in Vietnam, for example, or in Malaysia or in emerging markets who cannot get a credit score, cannot get excess traditional credit. But in Australia and the US, what we're seeing is people using this, even if they do have a credit card. Um, we are seeing people in Australia in particular starting to utilize debit more than credit. That's typical. We saw that after the GFC in 2008, 2009. We saw a pivot toward debit and away from credit. Uh, we're seeing it again now in times of financial distress that people want more control. BNPL gives them that control. As Brian said, it's clean. It's very easily understood. I buy it now, I pay back in four or six months, and I know exactly how much I'm paying back every month. So what I think we're gonna see the growth, this is not gonna cannibalize credit. I think credit cards are still gonna be here. And in answer, you know, since we're wrapping up, Brian said he expected them to die 10 years ago. We'll be here another 10 years, hopefully, and they'll still be around. Um, and uh, so I don't think plastic or wood or bamboo or titanium uh, cards are going away in any form. 
I do think Gen Z will pivot towards a digital first or digital only environment. Um, that's what they're used to with digital wallets. Uh, but that's in more of our emerging and developing markets. I think in developed markets like Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, I would argue even China um, in Asia Pacific and certainly Australia and New Zealand, uh, we will see cards and plastic be around for some time. But BNPL is a very nice complement um, and a very easily understood construct for lots of people. Merchants love it. The average basket size for merchants has increased by 85% um, where BNPL is deployed. So yes, merchants have to pay for it in certain models. And I'd, I'd like to give Michael uh, also a chance uh, to, to weigh in on this. Um, looking at all these transformational shifts, you know, the revamping of uh, operating models and, you know, new, uh, well, new or old, uh, arguably, uh, you know, uh, uh, models such as the buy now, pay later um, but uh, fundamentally, Michael, I mean, uh, you know, how, how can cards really complement, uh, you know, uh, looking at all the different types of payment strategies of both bank and non-bank players, uh, you know, how can cards really support that? You give us your thoughts on uh, in terms of, uh, you know, its, its ability to build trust, brand equity and loyalty. You know, from my perspective, you know, cards have been a, a payment instrument for the greater than 50 years. And during that journey, you know, there's been technological involvements, you know, from MagStripe or before MagStripe, OCR, then to MagStripe, now to chip and then to contactless dual interface. You know, there's been technological advancements. But now I think branding is, is, is the space. We're getting that reflected back on it. It's just a branding instrument, right? So whether you argue for debit, credit, buy now, pay later, which uh, all of those have card programs linked to them for the most part. We see these digital organisations all... Um, uh, launching cards, whether it be Venmo or Apple Pay or Google or others, they're all a grab, you know, doing doing card programs. And again, it's that it's that ability to have a 24-7 tangible payment instrument that is robust, repeatable and is ubiquitous essentially. You know, and you know, given all of the AI and the, the data mining and the data science and the ability to personalize, which is again a technological shift on the personalization front. You know, that's all lending itself to, you know, a greater ability to market to that one person and add value. If you're not adding value, whichever way that looks like, you know, you may as well not be around. So it's all about adding value. And, I, and you know, I may be bullish, maybe arrogant, maybe ignorant, all of, the, all of the above. But I think we're just scratching the surface of the card life. So, sorry, Brian, uh, I know you want to see the demise of cards. But I am very bullish on the future of cards. And, again, it's, it's not my words. It's what's being reflected back on me. You know, being part of the journey of different life cycles through different countries and seeing very mature, very sophisticated countries now leaning into new opportunities to market to one. It's, it's extremely exciting. And I, I will try and be quick, but just one thing, you know, we're all familiar with the card activation label. Well, the card activation label was there for activation, right? bring this number, identify yourself, and you would activate card. Now it's been seen as an opportunity to market to one. So with your data mining, your data science, with all of the ethical and visibility controls, you can target a specific message to that user. And that message could be from the bank, could be, you know, based on your habits or, you know, your, the, the data mining. It could be insurances or mortgages within the bank. But it, more interestingly, it could be to an external retailer, 
a sporting event, a, a rock concert or, or the like, where they target to you. That's a targeted message, which is temporary advertising, which doesn't destroy the brand or the equity of the, the brand. It actually adds value, adds value to the, the retailer or the, the bank department, adds value to the, to the program, adds value to the end user. So everybody wins. I think um, we're just scratching the surface. Certainly quite a compelling case, uh, Michael. I mean, it certainly is uh, quite critical in terms of engaging with customers and, and, um, and really looking at uh, all the different ways of uh, you know, offering those relevant, simple, timely, personalized uh, payment products and services. And as we mentioned earlier as well, in terms of driving transaction volume and, and, and fee-based incomes, I'd like to uh, perhaps uh, invite anyone who would wanted to share any final thoughts, comments, um, you know, in, uh, as we wrap up. In um, you know, looking back, uh, you know, at uh, you know how we started the session as well in terms of whether cards will actually survive in this digital first world. I think, as I just said, um, I think we'll be here ten years from now, and cards will still be around. So, um, I think, uh, Michael, you'll still have a job. Man, I'll take that bet. Okay, I think <laughs> around, but uh, there's a, there's there's growth. Unfortunately, uh, all of us people will be dying. And the cards will go in the coffin with us. I can't see how people are going to live their lives on a phone with the exception of a MasterCard, a Visa card, or a co-branded wooden card made out of fairy dust. It doesn't matter. People are moving to their phone. It is not, plastic cannot survive. In right. But if I, if I don't succeed, I will buy everyone here anything you want. Okay, don't worry. I'll give it, a, I'll give it eight years. I'll, I'll, I'll edge my bets. In this world of, of consistent noise and the, the fact that you always have to interact with your mobile, right, it's always asking for, for a slice of your life. You know, imagine a world where people want to shut down. They want to shut out. They want to go out and enjoy a user experience. And typically most user experience these days you have to pay for. If you want ultimate peace, then... Give me a piece of plastic every day because I'll, I'll, I'll take that piece of plastic. It will ask nothing from me, but it will work every single time. I want to take this opportunity to, to thank uh, Sharon, Brian, Ben, Priyanka and Michael uh, for joining us for a terrific session today. And, and we hope also that the audience um, has benefited from, from the wonderful insights shared by all our guests. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.